All right, guys, so welcome to another episode of the Imperfectly Perfect podcast. Today, we've got a very interesting topic and a very inspirational lady coming on board. Now, as I often do, I start by telling you a little bit about the person that comes in. She's done a lot in her career, and she's still pretty young in herself. So um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a bio, then we're going to get into some interesting topics today, and I've been looking forward for this one for a while. They are normally 30 to 40 minute podcast episodes, but we were talking the other day, which uh, kind of went on for a good few hours. So you never know. This is um, some great things talking about mindset, neuroscience, and uh, basically everything to do with mental health. So what I'll do first, I'll tell you about this lady. She's a 14 year expert in the world of fashion and entertainment as a professional model and commercial actress. During a time when height was a major requirement, she made history in Dallas as the first African-American female under 5'8" to be signed as a fashion model at her agency. Through the years, she's worked with credit, credited celebrity photographers, makeup artists, and styling teams whose work has been seen and recognized. TV personalities, supermodels, movie stars, and iconic influencers seen on the red carpet. Being published and recognized in full page spreads for numerous beauty magazines, including the iconic fashion magazine Vogue. By working and being represented by film, TV, and editorial executives, she's under eligibility to become a member of the Screen Actors Guild. Now, this is where I find it really interesting. That in itself is huge and, and so inspirational what she's achieved in a short time. But by combining her knowledge of the industry, politics, and love for science, she aims to solve the tension of communication in show business by bringing cognitive sciences to the world of fame. She's a licensed practitioner in neurolinguistic programming and neuroplasticity with studies in cognitive behavioral therapy and neuroscience. Through a company's research department, she consults professional psychologists and neuroscientists to ensure that her methods and trainings concur with the scientific community. So guys, I'd like to welcome Adair Bailey. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Man, that made me sound good. <laughs> when you hear your bio back and you're like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> that's I know. It's so funny when I first had to figure out a bio, I had to send my stuff over um, to a lady and I was like, wow, I've really done a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. And there are no bags under your eyes at all, lady. <laughs> You've been working, you working hard. But um, yeah, we actually, we, we actually met through a mutual friend, Julian, and he was telling me so yes. about you, and I found it so interesting. But before we get onto the parts of what you are doing or where you've taken kind of your career at the moment, take it back from the beginning. I like to find out about the person, the drive, uh, well-being in terms of what was it that sparked an interest in in kind of modeling and um, the commercial beauty industry. Uh, well, from as far back as I can remember, I think I was six years old and I told my class, I was in elementary school and I told my class that I wanted to be a model when I grew up. Um, I didn't really know where that came from because I just don't, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So it's not like I went shopping a lot. I didn't, we didn't own magazines. I only saw what I could see on television. Hmm. Um, and I just said I wanted to do it. There wasn't really a reason why, and I could never figure it out. It wasn't until I got older when I found out that my father had done the same thing when he was my age. He was a model. He was an actor. And then he, my mom got pregnant with me, and he kind of just put it on the back burner, and he never talked about it again. So I was like, 
okay, so did it just pass down and now I have to bring it to life? <laughs> I mean, did it, did, did it stem from, I talk to a lot of people and, and normally when they've gone down that route, it, it's come from somewhere like the father or something. And I was talking to Taja B. Simpson the other day and she said, yeah, she used to see a dad kind of act and in the house and then she'd recite all the little things and try and do it. But mm -hmm. your dad didn't even talk about it. So there must've been something. He didn't even talk there. about it. Yeah. I'm not sure what it was. I honestly, I don't know. I mean, I grew up in a very artistic and creative family anyway. Both of my parents are entrepreneurs. Hmm. Um, and my mother, she was kind of the jumpstart for two businesses that are still running today. So I kind of got a very good, just, I absorbed a lot of stuff when I was younger and I did not even realize it until I got older. And on top of that, I'm biracial. I'm half um, African-American and, and white. And I was the first biracial child on both sides of the family. So my parents marrying outside of their race for the first time on both sides was a very big deal. Mm. Um, so what I didn't realize is that was really preparing me to go after things that seem impossible. I didn't even think about it because it was so not acceptable at the time, <laughs> you know, for a black man to be with a white woman. There was a lot of black and white crime at that time, or white on black crime at that time. And um, so me growing up in that was, it's just like I, I was conditioned to get ready to go against the grain and go after things that may seem really far-fetched. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. And I love what you say there, just, just attributing to the going against the grain. I say it all the time with a campaign. I'm just like, we're going against the grain. What's the normal? Go outside of that. So yeah, be, you definitely I, are. I, <laughs> I just love that in people. It, it, it's a sheer drive. And like you say, you don't know where it came from. And I speak to my parents often and, and they see how far these campaigns come and they say, where did you get that from? Cause it weren't us. <laughs> I'm just like, I just love going against the grain, but I'm all for the small people that basically to give them a voice or to give me a voice. Right. I, I'm no big. But then I suppose when, when did that develop into something more serious where you actually was like, I'm going to give this, this a good go and, and see if I can do this? Um, I had started modeling when I was 14, I think it was. Yeah, I was, I was a pretty young teenager. But I didn't really break into the industry until I was 19. Hmm. So when I got into it at 14, I mean, it was – fun. Yeah. I was doing like shoots and some, you know, small runway stuff, but I'm not that tall. So I wasn't really doing like a lot of legitimate type of work. I was just trying to find my footing and, um, it became a challenge. And, um, anybody who knows me knows that I like challenges. <laughs> doesn't matter what it is. And I was like, I want to do this. I want to do this. Um, and I think it just being so far out of my reach was, even more of you know a drive to get me to go after it um but i knew i had a lot going against me and the reason i say that is because i was under five nine mm. um sometimes i'll make an exception if you're five eight but i got told no left and right because i was too short um i also was very athletic then and i had a large bottom my bum was large because i was an athlete and it still is kind of large because i'm an african-american woman so they didn't like that back then. And then at the also, um, curly hair was not in. Being biracial was not in like it is now. Um, so I didn't have 
a lot <laughs> going for me when I was trying to get into it. And um, finally, I was signed on my 19th birthday, which actually the original person that signed me first, he told me no. And then he told me yes when my photos came back. When he saw that I could photograph, he called me and he was like, hey, um, I want to sign you. And that's when my life changed. And how do you cut, how do you kind of cut through that noise when you're being told no and like you're constantly getting these no's for yourself? What was it in you that was like, I'm, I'm just going to keep on going? Because a lot of people would quit. Yeah. Uh, honestly, in this world, it's only a couple years. Four years is not really that long to be told no. <laughs> a lot of people go longer than that. And even once you actually even once you actually break into the industry, you're still getting told no. Like, it's not like I stopped hearing no once I got signed. I still heard no. All the, I got, I got told so many different things by so many people. The thing is, is you have to, you gotta be grounded in, as an individual. Yeah. Um, you gotta know what you want, because if you don't know what you want in this world, you go into it, and it's a completely different pace. It's very fast and you have all these people pulling at you different ways because there's so many opportunities. So you have to know what to say no to. I yeah. know that when people get into the industry, they automatically train themselves. I have to get a yes, I have to get a yes. But what they don't really train you to do is learn how to say no yourself. You have to know, you know what to turn down. You have to know where you fit in um, as your own brand. Because I think that's what gets people lost you know they go all these different directions um so for me if i got told no for something sometimes it would bother me but i knew that it was temporary and i knew that um i just didn't fit there if i didn't fit there then i move on and i go to the next thing so i kind of very early on i had separated myself from um the personal part and the business side of it because i started to I started to learn very quickly that, you know, I, I don't have time to take these things personal because it's going to affect um, business. And that's not to say I didn't deal with things. I still dealt with a lot of things. I still dealt with depression and stuff like that. Mm. But in, in regards to business, I just had to block it out and try not to take it personal. But there was a couple of times, I had some pretty funny stories when I was trying to, um, you know, get, get yeses. And when I got told no, like <laughs> probably my most famous one was when I, okay. So I got signed to this agency. I finally broke in the industry. And what happened is the agent that originally signed me, he moved over to acting full time because I mean, he was, he was getting his talent in all these movies in Hollywood and a lot of action films at the time. And then they had a new guy come in who was a fashion person. He was the head agent over the fashion. And what he did is he went down the list of all the models and he evaluated each one. I was one of them. Some of them got full makeovers. You know, like on America's Next Top Model when, yeah, when they have them and they do like each person, they say, you got to do this, you got to do this. That's kind of what he did. He got to me and he actually loved my look. He was like, I love your hair. You don't need to change anything on you know up here he said but you need to lose like four inches on your butt and you need to do that in a couple months and then come back to me wow. 
he told me my butt was too big, basically. He said, if you're going to model for me, you need to be under 35 inches. I was not 35 inches. <laughs> I'm still, I don't think I've ever been 35 inches. So I was like, how am I going to do this? Because you can't spot reduce. Like, how do I lose, how do I lose weight in one spot without losing weight all over and, you know, changing my entire appearance? Yeah. Um, so he's like, you need to go do hot yoga. All the models are doing it. And he gave me a couple months and, um, I had to come back and for him to measure me, I was supposed to wear a swimsuit, but I purposely did not because I knew I did not lose the weight. And I actually, this is so embarrassing, but I did it. I actually used saran wrap cellophane. I used cellophane to wrap my legs and my butt under my jeans so they look smaller when he measured me. And that was actually my friend's idea who is not with us anymore. He passed away um, about six years ago. But I remember that. I was like, I haven't lost the weight. I don't know what to do. <laughs> and we were like, just wrap your butt in saran wrap. Um, so I went, I, I went in front of him, he measured me. I still didn't you know, meet the requirements. And he took me off as a fashion model and like kicked me over to the acting side. And I got pissed. I got pissed off. And I was like, you know what? I'm just tired. And I took this crazy hiatus. I went, I did something models aren't supposed to do. I went and I changed my look without consulting my agent. I dyed my hair platinum blonde. Like I was purposely being rebellious. <laughs> and um, It ended up ruining my hair, by the way, because I have naturally curly hair. and <laughs> It was awful. I had to cut it all off. Yeah. Go like Halle Berry style, grow it all out again. But that was the whole emotional roller coaster I went through from, you know, not being accepted by somebody. Um, but I was that was earlier on. And after that, I kind of, I grew up a little bit. <laughs> I suppose with that in mind, for anybody who's listening to this and for anybody in that kind of industry that may be going through these kind of feelings and emotional struggles, how again did you kind of, overcome that because what I try and tend to do with these podcasts is the awareness is there with the campaign but with the podcast mm -hmm. it's kind of an open book where going never stop trying different ways so what you did for your mental health might help somebody what somebody else did for theirs because what we tend to see is somebody may go to a psychologist mm -hmm. and not really connect with them and then think oh well mm -hmm. I tried it. it doesn't work for me so what I'm trying to show mm -hmm. from these is everyone's story and how they did it so how did you get over right your your emotional struggles with that and how far did it go you mentioned you you, you went through about a depression was that mm -hmm. too much to, do to like your kind of industry and self-worth yeah i went through depression but i actually did not um seek help until years years later so even when i was in the industry and i was i was active um full-time active i did not see a psychologist i did not see a therapist um and one of the reasons why is because in that world it's normal mm. it's normal to not like yourself it's normal to um, have anxiety or depression or to be moody because a lot of people expect creatives to be moody it just comes with it um, so i never questioned it i was like oh i'm normal everybody's going through this but it's not normal mm. it's not normal to feel like shit every day you wake up it's just not <laughs> so um what I had to do for myself, and there's, there's other people that, that probably couldn't have done what I did because I just took a break regardless. I didn't care what my agent said 
like I needed time. So I would just take a break from the industry. Um, now, I don't think that's the most professional thing to do. Me looking back, if I would have had, um, you know, someone guiding me, I would have done things differently. I would have created more time for myself every day instead of waking up and saying, okay, I got to be a dare of the model today and I have to do this and I got to be like this. Um, I was losing myself in my image and a lot of people do that. A lot of people lose their self in their image. So one thing I can say now as an adult, <laughs> and when I say adult, I mean like as a mature person <laughs> who's grown in this industry, um, what I can say now is, you know, taking a break like that is, that's a reaction. That is not a prevention. What you have to do if you're in this industry and you're going through any of that is you have to have a preventative, um, you know, I guess, what's the word? I, what's the word I'm trying to think of? You have to have like a preventative practice for yourself whatever works for you. If that is an hour in the morning, every morning to yourself, do that. If you're having conversations with someone or you get an email from a producer or casting agent or, or casting director or um, your agent or manager, if you get that phone call where you're getting griped at or chewed out, um, you know, you got to take those moments and you got to breathe through those moments because everything is so visceral in that world. I mean, everything, because there's these large opportunities and I'm talking about millions of dollars behind contracts and, you know, possibilities that just change your life once you get a certain exposure. So there's all, you're always sitting on the edge, you know, waiting for that break. And you have to understand what that does for you. And that's actually, I didn't realize that I was taking it this way, but that's actually one of the reasons I kind of dug into uh, my business and what I'm doing now is the hormones and the addiction that happens um, in our brain and the patterns that we create that cause us to lose sight of professionalism and, and why we're there in the first place. Yeah. I'm not sure if I answered your question. I mean, I just went off on a <laughs> rant. <laughs> We're imperfectly perfect. I can't even remember what the question was now. <laughs> but that's going to take me leading into what you do now because I find it so interesting. Um, but just prior to that, going into that question, you featured in an iconic magazine. Well, many of them. But then when you got Vogue, how did that attribute to your self-worth? Did you then think you, you got this accolade of going, oh, now I'm happy because I've, I've reached that certain level? Do you know what I mean when there's people who kind mm -hmm. of attain a certain thing and attribute it to the outcome. And once they've got that kind of outcome, how it goes to how they feel. And a lot of people obviously go, I thought I'd be happy, but mm -hmm. I wasn't. So what was your kind of take when you reached that kind of an iconic magazine such as Vogue? Uh, when I got into Vogue, when I found out I got into Vogue, I was, I was very excited about it, but I didn't brag about it. I actually didn't really tell anybody until years later. Hmm. Um, I got excited because I knew, I mean, that's a huge name. Hmm. You don't really need to be in fashion to know that magazine yeah. um, or that, that corporation at all. And I was like, oh, wow, I have, you know, I can put this on my resume now. It's great. Um, the reason why it was so 
cool and exciting for me is because right before that I had my son. Um, and right after I had my child, I heard from multiple people in the industry that my career was over. Um, one, because I had a baby and on top of that, I have terrible stretch marks on my stomach. I mean, they're really bad. I'm not exaggerating. They really are bad. <laughs> and they look like I got in a fight with a tiger. Um, they're very deep. They look kind of cool now, but my skin never went back. So my body changed and I got stretch marks on other parts of my body. And yeah, they told me like, well, you're done now. So when I got in Vogue after that, that was just like a big mic drop moment for me. I was like, everybody didn't said I was done. Here you go. But um, other than that, I didn't really, I don't want to say I didn't care. It just wasn't fulfilling. Mm -hmm. Like I thought it would be. Um, all the things that I had done in modeling was not really fulfilling like I thought it would be because I realized that's not really what I want to do. Mm. Um, I wanted to be, um, I wanted to be a model for something, but I didn't want to be a model just for physical appearance. I wanted to represent something, uh, you know, that was a little bit more meaningful than, you know physical appearance than the surface. <laughs> so it wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't that, I knew it was a big deal, but it didn't, I didn't feel accomplished Yeah. when that happened. So then does that you make sense? Forward, yeah, yeah, of course it does. And then you moved it forward into you, obviously looking more fulfilled. Well, you, you as we were talking in conversation, you, you feel a lot more fulfilled doing what you're doing now. So for anyone listening, can you just explain a little bit about what you do? Because it's so interesting. <laughs> yes. So I am basically in the shortest thing as possible and bringing <laughs> cognitive sciences into the world of fame. Um, so I created a company called Entertainment Mindframe. And this was after all of my experience in the industry, seeing these psychological patterns um, in business um, hearing about all the crazy stuff that goes on in the industry. And then I was crazy about the brain on top of that. And so I was secretly a nerd that nobody knew about. <laughs> no one knew I was into this stuff. Um, and I combined it together. And um, so now I focus on cognitive enhancement and communication strategies for professionals in the world of fame, whether that's entertainment, media, or fashion. What have you found from doing it? What do you mean? Is it, is it receptive a lot? You're, you're going into, just, just on a basis for anyone out there listening, do you go in and do workshops on it? or Because I know you teamed up with neuroscientists and clinical mm -hmm. uh, psychologists. So tell us a little bit about how it's kind of structured. Yeah, so some of the things I do are, are workshops. Um, I've been doing a lot of seminars and webinars where I just come in and I do like a one-time um, teaching because it's such an interesting topic. <laughs> um, but if I'm working with a team, I'm with a team for about three months. Mm. Um, uh, we'll say one to three months. It depends on what they're wanting. Um, but when I'm working with a team, it is a lot more hands-on. Like I go in, I mean, I do evaluations. I kind of get a general idea of where everybody is mentally. And then I literally break it down, almost scientifically quantify it to where I show it to them. I make it visual so they can see. Um, 
And I can usually find that out by asking questions like how many hours of sleep do you get at night? Um, you know, are you the kind of person that shuts down when someone says something to you or are you the argumentative type? It kind of lets me know um, the structure of the company and the type of personalities that are in a room. And then once I show that to them, everyone's like, oh my God, that makes so much sense. And from there we can work on the communication issues. Um, it is so, so common that I found so far, every team that I've worked with, it is so common to have a team full of people that are dealing with anxiety or depression. Like that is the- I was gonna say to you, what's, what's the commonality that you find between it all? Yeah, that's the most common. That's the most common. And, and most of the time, it is not because they were born that way. It's because their habits have created, um, you know, a, an unhealthy way of living. It is very common also not to get sleep in this industry. That is known right there to drop your dopamine levels. Um, and it, it kind of, I won't say it burns, but it weakens those receptors um, that give you motivation and give you inspiration. That's just the science behind it. But people don't really realize that, you know, it's like, I got to go, I got to go, I got to get it, I got to get at it. Um, but their brains are like fried. It's just, it's crazy. And one of the things I share with people a lot is people that multitask, um, technically nobody can truly multitask where they can't fully be engaged with one thing, but that's not what I mean when I say multitask. When I say multitask, I mean, you have a bunch of different things going on and you're not fully engaged. You're, you know, doing literally trying to be an octopus and, um, and go all these different ways and get things done at the same time. People that multitask actually have the same brain scans as someone who has early signs of Alzheimer's disease. Um, that's how much of our daily habits affect our brain. It's really crazy. So if you, if I, I kind of break things down and show them like, this is what's happening um, with your hormones. And this is maybe why you be feeling, why you're feeling this way. And that's probably why you, um, you know, responded this way when you got that email. Um, I'm being vague because I don't want to use exact examples um, just to, just to be professional with my clients. But um, it's very interesting how much our, um, our mental state affects the type of work that we do and, and how, um, how we do it. Yeah. And how was it, first of all, recepted by kind of the industry that everyone knew you in when you went into there and you, you're kind of more behind the scenes, hands-on and, and you mm -hmm. went from a commercial model in the beauty industry to then suddenly talking about cognitive behavioral therapy and neuroscience and how, how was that received? Uh, a couple ways. Now, me changing my appearance, kind of, that's the kind of how I looked at it. Mm -hmm. I had a hard time myself personally going from being a model to talking about something that I'm passionate about. I was like, who's going to listen to me? You know, I, I truly thought that no one's going to listen to me because they only know me to be this way. Um, but that was my own thought that was my own belief system and I was I was wrong about that um, and that held me back for a long time I'm sure there are some people out there that you know are like well, what does she know about science but you know I don't care I can't care I can't I have to not care not because I'm you know 
being a jerk. I just can't. <laughs> so, um, but in the industry, um, when I talked about it, it was really amazing. It, it was, it was received like, wow, I've been waiting on this. And where have you been? We need you right now. I really didn't have to sell myself. Um, because people that if you're in the industry and I mean, really in the industry, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And those are the people I directly spoke to. I remember I was actually in a shoot one time and um, I was working with Michelle Williams from Destiny's Child. We were, I was across from her. She was getting her makeup done and I was getting my hair done. And um, the stylist came in and asked me about my business and I started talking about it and the whole room went silent. Like it was just one of those moments where it's like, man, you know, you know when you're talking about something, when everybody just stops what they're doing. Yeah. And then after that, like people just started sharing stories with me and Michelle started sharing stories with me. And I was like, wow, this is powerful. You know, I'm like, I'm really hitting on something here. So I got, that's the kind of feedback that I received from people. Now, when I actually go in and do the work, that's when I get pushback because, <laughs> because it's a different way of approach. And it's, it's not like, you know, I'm butting heads with people. It's not like that. It's just, it's so new and people are skeptical of things that are new and that's normal. We're supposed to do that. Our brains are designed to do that. Um, but <laughs> it's just funny because I come in and I'm like, okay, well, we got to go this way. A lot of people get scared initially because when they hear that I, you know, have studies in cognitive behavioral therapy, they're like, oh my God, I got, I'm going to go to therapy or we're going to do group therapy. And I'm like, no, no. We're not going to do therapy here. We're not going to talk about your childhood. We're not, I'm not going to go back and pull anything out. I'm just here to help you understand, um, you know, how much of your mind, how much of your mentality is being projected into your business. Even though everybody believes your emotions are separate, they're not. Your brain actually doesn't even work that way. Your, yeah. your emotional brain is on the inside and your cognitive part is on the outside and your brain works from the inside out. So when I explain that to people and we break down um, all the way to operations, I mean, it's a night and day difference. It's really incredible. Well, that's where I was going to go. Firstly, I will just, I will just say there when you mentioned, um, um, I'm now noticing the difference between like, um, what, what's the word? Serendipitous moments and just things happening for a reason. But funnily enough, mm -hmm. So I've started paying more attention to intuition and things like this. You mentioned there that you was in a room with Michelle Williams of Destiny's Child. Only the other day, I was actually, I got an email from a lady in the US who's, she works for the association of, of something or other, and she knows everyone who's everyone. And she was like, would you like me to talk to Michelle Williams of Destiny's Child? Because she's very openly speaking about mental she, health advocacy. Yeah, and she does, yeah. So, to me, I'm going, okay, that's a serendipity. Confirmation. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> to what you were saying there, you, you kind of touched on it, but how people, first of all, not recepted it in, in one way, but the other in resisting change. Because what I've been looking into lately is obviously that there's genetic coding there, as we often yeah. see, like that cellular structure where we've got this coding from like our parents, grandparents, and we're so scared of change. 
So how have you tried to move? I know, look at me there. <laughs> um, yeah. How do you kind of maneuver through your workshops and your, your, your kind of keynote speeches to change that perception? Because it is hard when it's genetic coding, so to speak. It is hard. Um, and, I, you know, I would say to that is I don't try to change people's perception. Yeah. Um, only if they're having trouble, if they're having blockage, and I just give them an alternative way mm -hmm. to perceive something, then the work, they kind of do the work on their own. Um, but yes, there is a lot of, there is genetic coding. There is, um, I mean, there, there's a, it's, it's very hard to break belief systems or to even challenge belief systems um, because it, if it doesn't make sense to the brain, if it doesn't make sense to your mind, your brain will reject it. Um, that's the, that's a lot of the stuff that I've been studying um, in neuroscience. Like it just, our brain only looks for things that confirm what we believe, even if it's right in front of us, we will choose to block it out. And that happens on a subconscious level. That's not a cognitive thing. So we don't even know that we're doing it. Um, but one thing I like to tell people when I am teaching, one of the things that you know, I practice is neuroplasticity and neuroplasticity that is the ability for your neurons to change in the brain and how information travels through your nervous system. So when you hear that and you realize that you're not really stuck anywhere in whatever you believe, um, there is, I don't know why this just popped in my head, but it made me think of it made me think of this um, research that was done for, I actually mentioned this on one of my other podcasts. Um, there was research that was done with uh, people that had taken shrooms and they got really, you know, high and then they reported all the stuff that they experienced, right? Um, and a neuroscientist was doing this and um, she, the, the results basically, <laughs> The things that people were experiencing directly tied to either a belief system they had when they were growing up or the structure of their life when they were growing up. But what happened over all these years is the brain had moved out certain information. So they didn't remember that. So they may have believed they were having a surreal experience and, you know, having conversations with people. And I'm not saying that's not real, but what I am saying is they were able to tie it back to their belief systems that they had when they were little, even if they didn't practice that anymore. That's really how powerful the brain is, that even when you're not in a conscious state, <laughs> it's still confirming what you believe all the way back to childhood. Yeah. Um, and it's made to do, it's, it does that to keep you alive. The brain is always processing stuff, always, every day it's scanning. It's like a robot and it's, Put, storing things and it's throwing them out, storing things and throwing them out. There's so much more in your head that you do not remember. You don't remember. Um, but maybe sometimes things will come out like hip, hip, uh, people that do hypnosis, yep. they're able to tap into that and they'll be able to, they will help you remember something that you completely forgot. It's really crazy. It's kind of creepy when you think about it. But when I, when I tell people that and I show them how, you know, how the brain does change. You're never stuck. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, that's a really powerful, people have healed from that. People who have been told they're never going to walk again have healed from that just from building the neuroplasticity in their head and believing mm -hmm. that they can. That is why, um, that is why manifestation is so powerful. You know, that is why um, meditation is so powerful. That's why all these things, because you're building, you're building a neurological structure um, that your brain will believe and therefore anything is possible. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, if I have the, if I have the stubborn people that just, you know, they believe one thing, it's fine. I'm not trying to get them to change. I just want them to understand well, we can change your brain and, and I'm going to give you things to do where we can do this. And I'm going to show you that you can do this. <laughs> if I, I like even listening to you. I'm like, we could go on for two hours because I love listening to this stuff. And it's even mm. kind of when you touched on it, how powerful meditation is there. Like the last, say, six to eight months, I've probably got more into it. And the amount of people mm. that I'm kind of associating with now and talking about it and me researching stuff and then coming across yourself and looking at your work and researching the brain a little bit more and just finding out a lot of it in terms of there are those, um, those triggers from probably childhood that we suppress in that brain as well. We suppress it so much and we don't even remember it's there until yeah. it comes up. And I, I was speaking to a lady and she's more in terms of she's, she's gone through neuroscience and that, but spiritual and holistic as well. And mm -hmm. she was basically saying to me when we was doing this kind of cognitive um, testing I was suppressing something that happened when I was like four or five years old. And I asked my parents and I was like, what was it? And it was like, no, it was a, it was fine. There was nothing wrong. But mm. it, he said it could have been something at four to five years old could have been something as simple as moving up a year in school. And that to you was traumatic for some right. reason. And you suppressed it. And then it's come out in later life. Yeah. It just shows you yeah. how powerful the mind is. I know it's so crazy and it, she's right. It does not have to be anything drastic. I mean, I can't tell you how many people, this is, this is why I love what you're doing because you're talking, you talk about mental health and so many people label mental health as in something is wrong, that you need to fix something because something is wrong. That doesn't mean that mental health is just like physical health. Yeah. It's about upkeeping your mentality. It's about preventing things from deteriorating. It's about making your mind stronger. It's not necessarily about, oh, I feel sad, so I'm going to talk about it. That's not what mental health is. <laughs> mental health is making sure your mentality is healthy. Um, so there's so many people that have good childhoods, and they think because they had a good childhood that they never had any issues. Well, that's not necessarily true. I had a good childhood, hmm. but I still had things that happened. Now, when I say I had a good childhood, both of my parents were in my life and they loved me. Mm. That, I was fine with that. Yeah. Um, but there were still so many other things that happened in my childhood. Um, and a lot of it stemmed from things that happened to my parents when they were children that they didn't deal with. Um, so it's just, it's so interesting how all that stuff is, you know, mixed up in there and then it's projected into your environment and you don't even know it. You yeah. don't even realize it. Yeah. <laughs> it even comes back to it. And I always say like, so my background's uh, sports science and then the fitness industry a long time. And it was only when I turned 30, like six years ago, I suddenly started developing body dysmorphia. I never mm -hmm. had before. I went to see a psychologist after it got really bad. I'd gone from like maybe a few minutes looking in the mirror to obviously like three to four hours and it was consuming me. 
And on the outside, I was teaching like group fitness and fitness to like 60 to 100 people. So even my wife, she, she thought it was kind of narcissism. Imagine this guy on stage, confident, getting off, looking in the mirror. Like she thought it was confidence. But I, I got to such a dark place that in the end, I went to see somebody and even they at the time, and this is why I'm so adamant about keep on trying different avenues to people, not just the first psychologist that doesn't connect because they were trying to attribute mine to maybe something in my childhood. Whereas mm, my, yeah. it, it wasn't. And I couldn't, yeah. quite frankly, I always say sometimes on these podcasts that it pissed me Absolutely. off because it wasn't. So I yeah. the best thing when I started working with a personal trainer who'd actually gone through the same and we started imprinting some kind of cognitive behavioral therapism because I'm so determined. I kind mm. of, when I say I self-diagnosed body dysmorphia, I was living in Thailand at the time and bearing in mind they're more educational based. So they're not aesthetics or worrying that much. But what that attributed to me to realize was that yes, people knew me as a personal trainer and I knew sports science. I knew theoretically the body and the makeup and the DNA, but what I was seeing in the mirror there was a huge disparity and it just showed me going, my God, where your brain can take you, even though you know the theory of it and how it right. is working, but right. to, you can tell yourself. And that's why yeah. what you do is so interesting because the mind is just such, such a, a huge, everything, everything. It is. It's, it's the most complicated computer on the planet. Yeah. And it is in between our ears. And that's scary because everybody has one and yeah. we don't understand it. Um, I mean, even neuroscientists are still, it's a constant discovery. It's like, nobody really knows all of it yet. We're still learning about it. Um, but yeah, that exactly what you went through, the body dysmorphia, that is, again, that's something that people don't understand. They're like, oh, it sounds like a first world problem to me, somebody who's good looking has a problem looking at themselves. You know what I mean? Like that's how people minimize it, yeah. but it's not about that. It's, it's about your brain had dissociated your own identity. Yeah. And after a while you can lose who you are. Anybody, it can happen to anybody. It can happen to a mother who has children and she absorbs her entire life with her children. It can happen to a CEO of a company. Um, just, you know, doing, doing, I don't know, you name it, real estate, anything. You don't have to be, um, quote unquote, in a physical industry to deal with that. Yeah. You know, it, it could be anything. And yeah, your mind, what your mind does is your mind builds what you practice. And if you're practicing, you know, going on stage all the time as um, a physique builder and talking about fitness, then you're building those really strong pathways. And that's that really hard confidence, right? But then on the other end, um, there's this self identity that who you are outside of all of that stuff that you lose, you know, and there could have been multiple things going on in your head when you're staring in the mirror. And a lot of people go through this. I've done it. I've done it where I've looked at myself. I have looked at my pictures. I know a lot of models that do this. I've looked at my photos that are completely done, completely Photoshopped, that took hours for me to get ready. And I look at myself and I'm like, I am not the same person. Who is that person? Who am I? <laughs> um, and a lot of people go through that. A lot of people lose themselves in that identity. And it is, it's a tough 
it's a tough world. People, I don't, I'm not sure the outside world understands, which if they don't, that's fine. They're not really my focus. My focus is for people that are in this mm. industry, people that are dealing with it and you firsthand experienced it. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know how like absorbed you can get and then completely lose yourself and not even know what the hell you're doing anymore. Yeah. Well, we actually lost, um, we lost a friend for 10 years. He was my wife's best friend. He, he was in the modeling industry, good looking guy. First of all, he, he openly spoke about having some emotional struggles because he was a gay guy and his family were Catholic and they didn't accept it. So that was one aspect. But after oh. we actually got married, he was our best man. He got us together <laughs> through the gym. And, um, wow. Yeah, we lost him for 10 years. And when we finally found him, he'd, he'd gone to Europe, he'd done all this, but he had gone through a really severe bout of body dysmorphia, exactly like myself. And I was like, my God, if we'd have actually spoke, we was going through the same thing. But being in the model industry, with body dysmorphia on the top, I was <laughs> like, wow, like I didn't have that kind of scrutiny because I wasn't having pictures took and, and things like that. But being in the industry and comparing it, and he said he'd walk past a, a window and he'd catch a glimpse of himself and he'd just see the scrawniest little guy ever. And he's a good looking guy. And what we see, it, it again, it shows what goes in the head. But I suppose it's just where I'll get to with my last question is kind of almost changing the vernacular around mental health. I know I've been talking to a, a lovely lady in the fitness industry. She's a psychologist as well. And she's tried to change the name from mental health to mental fitness, because what a lot of mm -hmm. men do is we know, and we've seen it. I don't want to get politics, but I would rather have a lot of women running these countries than men, because as we see, there's testosterone, there's ego, there's competitiveness. So why don't we mm -hmm. change that into a positive towards mental health? And and change that vernacular and go mental fitness. It's almost like you're challenging yourself and men yeah. are more receptive and not just men. Yeah. Like, because the stigma yeah. again, coming to mental health, it's no different. Right. We know to physical health, but people like, as I say, that genetic coding, people are stuck in that own mentality of, I can't talk about it because my parents, mm -hmm. and, my parents and so forth never did. Yeah. You know, that is, that point it, it's so interesting because because i am a woman mm -hmm. and because i am so like you know people see me as strong um a lot of people put me in the feminist category where i'm just like i stand up for all women and i mean partially i do but i i am such a huge advocate for men as well because i think men truth be told i really do think men struggle more with um, things like that because one just throughout history this is a societal programming that we've had for a very long time is one thing is that men are not allowed um, you know and they and you don't have time to figure things out right that's kind of the initial you know you fall down get up get over it you'll be fine be a man about it on top of that society has also told men that they are successful. They, it's also told men that they should have everything figured out, that they should know what to do. You lead the family, you run the business, you change the world. And men don't know. It's not like, I think that's what's wrong with this structure. And, and you know, women are like, oh, it's not fair. Men get more, men are more, men are more. And I'm like, well, wait a second here. You're putting a huge burden 
on another human shoulder. Men are no more human in, or any more of a human than women are. Yeah. You're putting a lot of a burden on a person's shoulder to have everything figured out. Therefore, when they fail, when men fail, it is such a harder fail because they are expected. You are expected to have it figured out. You're expected to be the man of the house. You're expected. You know what I mean? Like you have to do it and you don't get it. You don't get a pass. The problem with that is like so many men suffer in silence. So many men suffer in silence. And, you know, it's crazy to me when, when women say that, you know, there's this hierarchy and I, I know what they're talking about, but on the opposite end of the spectrum, if that was true, if men were the main um, leaders and um, well, I don't want to say leaders because we do have a lot of leaders, you know, upper up, up that are, that are men, but if men were truly benefiting from all that, then men would not be leading the numbers in prison. Men would not be leading the numbers with, you know, PTSD or being homeless or committing crimes. You know what I'm saying? That's leading with men as well. So there's a whole other side of the spectrum where you can see men are actually really struggling with this. And I have such sympathy for that. It's something that I focus on, you know, when I do my trainings as well is I like, I got to bring everybody down to the same level. You know, I don't care if you're the CEO. I don't care if your parents were millionaires. We all have brains and they're all wired up, <laughs> you know? That is the base of the truth because that's what I've been trying to show with the campaign. And it's funny, I've been getting these messages during COVID and people suddenly going, oh, this is what you've been fighting for all along, isn't it? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, it doesn't matter whether you're a, a cleaner or a CEO. This virus affects us all. It doesn't discriminate. But mental health has never discriminated. So why... Right are we holding it on such a disparity between like, Oh, that person's a celebrity. They don't know what it's like. I mean, I've got a lady on here and she's a powerful woman in, in Sydney and an executive in PR and, and flies around the world. She came mm -hmm. on the campaign and there was an article that came out because she's so well known. And I was actually so offended by the article, like the comments, not the article itself, but I hadn't realized that this article had come out in a, a fellow PR marketing kind of magazine mm -hmm. and the abuse and it was like oh um, slap a, a picture of a, a sad woman who's privileged and who's got everything and she doesn't know what it's like and it was like this is a this is a disgrace because da 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 I didn't want to say this to her and then her PA actually got in touch with me and she was like oh we got some press out did you see it like there was a couple of her and I was like, yeah. And he was like, oh, did you see that one? I was like, um, yeah, but I didn't want to say anything because I felt offended and wanted to go back and comment on all these people and go, and this is why we lose people as well. You guys aren't yeah. year old children who don't know better. You're grown ass adults who are online trolling and bullying and pulling someone down and saying, because she's white privileged background, what comes yeah. with privilege that I've learned is, hey, if you've got that much money, a lot more responsibilities come, but also growing up in that background, you might have to like attain to be somebody perfect. Like your family might tell you to keep quiet if you're going through mental health struggles because they're, they're known in circles that are powerful. Oh, we can't let yeah. anyone seem to be weak. And it, it's just opening a can of worms, isn't it? Just to go. Right. <laughs> no, so I know it. That's the, that is the, um, 
that's the dumbest thing. Like one thing I remember when I first started and people were interviewing me, they were like, what's it like working with celebrities? Mm. You know? And I was like, it's not any different than working with anybody. <laughs> the only difference is time. Like time is like, it's just, you have this much time all the time. Like it is just going, the speed of things are different. That's the only difference. But other than that, they're people, they're people. And if you want to, if, if, if people understood the brain, which is your brain is structured to a reality that you believe, it doesn't matter if you have millions of dollars, it doesn't matter if you don't, your brain is still structured to a belief system and your surroundings and your brain doesn't automatically fix itself once you get more money in your bank account. Yeah. And it's not, it's not a competition. <laughs> it's not a competition. And it's so funny to me. Um, you know, I tell people, you know, we're very judgmental. We're very judgmental creatures. We're so wacky. We're just weird. <laughs> and we think we have everything figured out. We really do. We believe we can sit from our seat and be armchair activists about something that someone else is doing. It's, it's amazing to me. Um, but I tell people that we don't know what we want. We have no idea what we want. And a good example is this COVID-19. If you would have asked people a few months ago, you know, would you take a couple months off of work and be okay? They would say yes. Everybody would be happy. And yeah. what happened? A virus came, a worldwide pandemic came, and everybody had to stay home. And it was like, oh my God, I can't do this. I need my friends. I need sunlight. I need to talk to people. I need to go shopping. I need to go to the bar and have a drink. And I'm like, it's, we compare to what we don't have. Yeah. We do that naturally. Even when we get it, we're still unhappy. So that should tell you just in this time, just in this moment, that should tell you, you got your couple months off <laughs> of not going to work, yeah. but you didn't think about everything else that was going to come with it. And it's the same thing in, you know, a world of fame or people who are extremely successful all you think is, oh, they have money, so everything's else, everything else is okay. Yeah. But there's so many other factors that come into that that a that a person who has a normal life cannot handle. Yeah. It's a whole nother level. Um, so it's interesting to me how people are very so judgmental about stuff like that. I'm like, what, when did they lose their human card? You know. <laughs> I, I, I just think, in, and I always say this, is kind of um, judgment is based on the back of hypocrisy. Like, as humans, yeah. we are conditioned to judge whether it's good or bad, whether something is right. bad, should I say. But we all need to start being more mindful because I, I, I'll attribute this, and I, I always say, like, because I've got kids and yourself, you've got a little boy, but imagine you sitting there gossiping, so to speak, about somebody else who may be going through something and you're putting your judgment on them, but then we know as parents, our kids pick up everything, even though we don't think they do sometimes. And then they right. start out with what you've been speaking about. For them to then suddenly think, I don't speak about my emotional struggles if I'm going through something because mommy or daddy might speak about me to somebody else. It, it's, it's prolonging this whole stigma that people can't talk about it. So yeah. I think it's just this judgment needs to kind of it'll never go we can't we can't change judgment we can only be more mindful mm -hmm. yeah we just have to redirect judgment um, yeah. because we're going to do it naturally we're we're made to do that yeah um to do it in a you know 
I guess, gossipy kind of way that could change, but we're going to, we're going to judge regardless, but I think redirecting it and taking a judgment to more, um, what would I say? More analytical thinking. <laughs> if you're going to judge, let's take into consideration all these things so we can actually make, you know, uh, an accurate, <laughs> you know, assessment of what, what, we, what might be going on. Well, um, we could probably talk all day. We've been talking an hour, but what already? No, I was like, crazy. <laughs> but, um, what I will say is, your work needs to be worldwide. The more I've looked into it and been talking to you, I was telling you the other day. I don't think we've got anything as such in Australia, so that's something we can try and transition over to the world, the world as well. Um, yeah. But for anybody listening and interested in finding more information about your company, about yourself, where can they find it? They can go directly to my website. That's www.entertainmentmindframe.com. Or you can find me on social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, um, Instagram. You type in my name, Adair Byerly. That's A-D-A-I-R-E-B-Y-E-R-L-Y. Okay. Well, I want to thank you for obviously being an advocate towards mental health and talking about what you do. It's so interesting. And I know there'll be more conversations because <laughs> we're always speaking about this stuff. Love that is it. crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, it, it just comes from kind of ripple effects when you know certain people and, and people introduce you to certain people. And it's yeah. so good. And it's opened my mind. That Michelle Williams thing was pretty cool. Oh, there's been a lot of those kind of moments and it was right <laughs> yeah yeah but um when she comes on the campaign <laughs> i'll tell her <laughs> that we're speaking to her. <laughs> cool. but, oh, before we go before that because i was talking to taja v simpson who's on which well, is a director and actress she's on bet it's an american network bet you'll probably know it the oval tyler perry show um and she actually just she went to i think it was an Emmy Award season, and she actually was talking about mental health and met up with uh, Beyonce. So again, a little serendipitous Beyonce, Michelle Williams, it's all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You want to look at it. Anyway, I want to thank you again for taking time out of your day. And um, thank you. Yeah, on behalf of the campaign and myself, thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. We're going to be talking again. I know. <laughs> so, so, Guys, for anybody who wants to catch up on this episode or any of the latest episodes of the Imperfectly Perfect podcast, just simply head to Spotify or iHeartRadio where you can gain all the information and links to Adair and also the latest episodes. Until next time, guys, keep safe and take care.